Now, before Brad gets started, I need to introduce him because he's a foreigner. He's a foreigner. And so when you have a foreigner get in your pulpit, you need to let everybody know he's a foreigner. But he's from the cold north, okay? So uh, we want to make sure, even though it's a little warm in here today and last week our air conditioning broke down, uh, he's not used to that. Because after he came down for seminary, he went to Russia, and he was in Samar, Russia. And this is a place where in the wintertime you get uh, temperatures of 10 to 30 degrees below zero. And he helped get started the training center that's there was able to leave it in the hands of the Russians so that they could do it. I've asked him to speak in English today and not Russian, and, and he's agreed to do so. But anyway, I, I really, truly appreciate this man because when you go to a foreign country to learn a foreign language, to live in those kinds of conditions, take your children, your wife, and, and all of that, it, it, um, having been there, I only visit for you know a week or two, but to stay there is not an easy thing. And so, um, and he'll know what I'm saying here. Uh, you don't have to take a mashuka to come here. Спасибо. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, appreciate the opportunity to serve you through the ministry of the word this morning. Uh, Bill, I, I won't speak in American English. I'll speak in Canadian English, if that's okay. So... I won't even say sorry for that. So, I, you might need to translate a few words like out and about and sorry and things like that. So, sorry, yeah, I'm not sorry for that. Yeah, I am looking forward to the retreat in November. It'll be my first time there for, for me and my wife. It'll be our first time there. Uh, I think it was either Bill or, or George. They were going to have a surprise contest of mucking, you know, the horse stalls. See who could. Do the most in the... That's Bill? Okay. <laughs> but it, it should be a good time. Do they have tractors there? I, I grew up on a farm, so I'm looking forward to driving the antique tractors. Are they there? Okay, good. <laughs> no, it'll be a good time. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to exposit First Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at, uh, not today, uh, at the retreat... I'm going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 at the retreat, and we're going to look at the characteristics of authentic faith during that time. But I do want to look at 1 Thessalonians this morning. I want to look at a text in chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we are going to focus on verses 9 to 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. And as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background on this church in the city of Thessaloniki, or Thessalonica. Uh, This was a model church. Uh, We have these two brief letters from the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica, and these are the warmest of Paul's correspondence to the churches. In fact, you can see it simply by looking at how many times, how repeatedly he refers to the believers in Thessalonica as his brothers. That term brothers occurs more frequently than his other epistles. This was a dear church to Paul, and and we can feel the sense of of his connectedness to them, uh, his affection for them, just by reading through his letters to them. It was a model church. It was a church that within a short period of time 
had become exemplary. In fact, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians from the city of Corinth, which is to the south of Thessalonica in a different Greek province, different Roman province, he writes First and Second Thessalonians to them within about half a year to a year of having planted the church in Thessalonica. And within that short period of time, six months after having preached the gospel in Thessalonica and then receiving a report back on how that church was doing, a report from Timothy, he writes 1 Thessalonians to them. And chapter 1 is filled with affirmations and encouragements about this wonderful church. He said that from them the word of the Lord had sounded forth to all those who are in the province of Macedonia and Achaia. He loved this church. It was a special church to him. And when we look at 1 Thessalonians, if we want to break it up into two parts, it roughly falls into two halves. The first, the first three chapters are devoted to repeated expressions of thanksgiving, repeated expressions of affirmation, as well as several uh, sections in there as he gives them updates on, on his life and what's been transpiring in his life and so on and so forth. The second half of the book begins in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, there's a really critical transition that Paul makes in chapter 4, verse 1. You can see it there if you've got your Bible open to 1 Thessalonians 4. He then says, finally then. And it sounds like he's bringing things to an end. He's actually not because for the next two chapters, uh, he has a lot of instruction and exhortations for this church. Timothy uh, had been visiting this church and had come back to where Paul was at in the city of Corinth and had brought back a report about how this church was doing, a report about some of the challenges the church was facing, particularly with respect to persecution and ostracization, as well as some of the interpersonal struggles that any church will experience in its life. And Timothy had brought back a report, and so beginning really in chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 5, Paul answers those questions and provides instructions that the Thessalonian church needs at that time in their lives. This letter is important for us today, as all of Scripture is, but this church really takes us back to basics. It was a new church. In many senses, it was a baby church, six months old. And so in this letter, we see Paul affirming the, the wonderful the, the wonderful quality of faith that had been exhibited by these Thessalonians, but also re-emphasizing the basics of Christianity. And in fact, the text that we're going to look at this morning, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 4, really comes down to some basic issues. In fact, one of the most basic issues of the Christian life when it comes to our daily living, our practice, And we find that in this section, verses 9 to 12. Let me read it. Paul says this, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders 
and not be in any need. Our text here is, is a one paragraph made up of two sentences, and it focuses on the first phrase that we find there. Now, as to the love of the brethren. Paul has reached this point in his responses to the needs of the Thessalonians, perhaps some questions they had. And so this text is all about the love of the brethren. We're going to look at that in detail. But as we consider that concept of the love of the brethren, this text is really going to unfold for us around three ideas. So this morning, I want you to wrap your thoughts around three basic ideas, three three instructions or three components about brotherly love that Paul deals with here in this particular instruction. First of all, he's going to, Paul is going to talk about the inevitability of brotherly love. So our first thought is inevitability, the inevitability of brotherly love. And we're going to find that in verse 9 and the first half of verse 10, the inevitability of brotherly love. Then he's going to move on to talk about the improvement of brotherly love, the improvement of brotherly love. And we're going to see that in the second half of verse 10 and in verse 11. And then we're going to see the impact of brotherly love in verse 12. So our key thoughts, the inevitability, the improvement, and the impact of brotherly love. Now let's look at the first of these, the inevitability of brotherly love. Notice verse 9 and the first half of verse 10. Paul writes this, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Paul begins with this affirmation. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. As Paul works through these issues, he, he touches on this issue of brotherly love, and he begins by admitting the fact that for believers, brotherly love is inevitable. For believers, it's inescapable. This is who we are. This is our fiber. And so from that standpoint, Paul says, there, there's an inevitability here. You really don't need me to write to you about this issue. And when Paul talks about brotherly love here, it's a very fascinating term. It's not literally translated as the love of brothers, but it's the term, one term, Philadelphia. Now, as to Philadelphia or concerning Philadelphia, you have no need for anyone to write to you. And this is a fascinating term. Paul does use it elsewhere. It's it's not the common term for love in the New Testament. In Greek and Roman writings, this term was used in a very special way to refer to sibling relationships. It was used to refer to those who are born into the same family, who are brothers and sisters according to blood. That was how the, the, the Greeks and the Romans thought of Philadelphia. True brotherly love, and it included sisters as well. There's no distinctions here. And, and what the Greeks and Romans really elevated, which we've lost in our day, but they elevated this special relationship that exists between members of a family, especially between 
brothers and brothers, brothers and sisters, sisters and sisters, all who share the same blood. But Paul and and some other writers in the New Testament, they do take this term and and use it metaphorically, obviously not to to refer here uh, to the idea that there were some siblings in the Thessalonian church. No, Paul uses it metaphorically. He uses it metaphorically to refer to the relationship that now exists between the members of the church. This is not a general love. This is not a general kind of appreciation or respect. Paul is emphasizing a very deep-seated kind of love here. You see, in the Greco-Roman context, what that brother-sister relationship represented was an exceptional kind of solidarity, an exceptional kind of unity that, that could really never be broken because the brother and the sister, the brother and the brother, sister, sister, they were united by something they could do nothing to erase. And that was their DNA. That was their blood. That was a solidarity. But the reality was that as highly as the Greeks and the Romans prized Philadelphia and elevated this concept of relationships among siblings, they could never really attain it. They they elevated it, but never realized it. But Paul takes this term, and this is fascinating. He takes this term and he says, you already know about this. I don't even need to write to you about this. And what is fascinating is that Paul is using this term to describe the the very deep-seated relationship that existed between men and women from very diverse backgrounds in the Thessalonian church, probably of different social standings, maybe of different ethnicities. And Paul uses this highly praised, highly prized concept and says, you already experience this. You already have this. This is a special term for Paul. And like I said, that's why Paul uses the term brothers over and over again to address the Thessalonian church. He was a Jew. He had different blood, very different blood, Abrahamic blood, very different than the pagans and the Gentiles. And yet to these Gentile readers, he calls them brothers over and over again, some 18 times in these five chapters. This was an important concept for Paul. And by the way, Some Bible translations today really struggle with the concept of the term brothers. And some even fairly good translations will translate the term brothers with the word friends. That is an inaccurate translation. It does not communicate the kind of solidarity that Paul emphasizes as part of the true church. They're not just friends. They're brothers and sisters united in a very special way, an unbreakable bond, and that could not be described by the term friends. Brothers is very important. This brotherly love, Philadelphia, is a a unique characteristic for the church. And he says, I have no need, we have no need to write write anything to you. Now, what Paul is doing here is, is kind of an interesting approach there's actually a term for this in, in rhetoric when, and, and sometimes we'll even use it today, when, when we'll say, I don't even need to say anything about this, and then we go on to talk about it anyway. 
And Paul does that here. He's going to do it again in chapter 5, verse 1, where he's going to talk about the day of the Lord and and the times and the the epochs of the day of the Lord. And he's going to say, you really don't have any need for me to write to you about this. But he goes on and writes about it anyway. And Paul does that here. He says, there's no need for anyone to write to you about this. But he goes on to give them these two sentences, which are just packed with a lot of practical instruction. Now, he does this not because he's trying to be facetious. He's not trying to, 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 uh, to, to be manipulative, but he is really pointing to a fundamental reality. You really don't need anyone to write to you about brotherly love, about Philadelphia. And he's going to explain this in two little phrases, uh, little clauses that come after that statement that we see in one in verse 9 and one in verse 10. Notice how he explains why there's no need for the apostles to write to the church about brotherly love. The first one, the first reason for this affirmation is found at the end of verse 9. And this is a fascinating explanation. He says this, For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. This term for taught by God is another fascinating term. We would literally translate it as God taught. It's one word in the Greek. And this word, Paul invents. He takes the word God and the word taught, and he puts them together. It's very straightforward, but we don't find this anywhere else in, in the scriptures, this particular Greek term. But the idea is present elsewhere in scripture. In fact, this idea has an echo of a text out of Isaiah 54. You don't need to turn there. You can just write it down, look at it later. I'll read it to you. Isaiah 54 verse 13, where Paul or where, where Isaiah is describing the realities of the new covenant when when the nation of Israel would be revived, when there'd be transformation, when God would work in a special way among the people of Israel and bring them all back to himself. And he'd inaugurate this new covenant. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 54 verse 13, he says this, all your sons will be taught of the Lord. All your sons will be taught of the Lord. He's speaking of a new covenant reality. He's he's going back to the Old Testament and he's referring to a very interesting ministry of the Lord that was predicted in the Old Testament. Now Paul is drawing on that for his teaching here. In fact, there's a parallel to this in Jeremiah chapter 31. Again, you don't need to turn there, but in Jeremiah 31, a key text about these promises that are given to Israel about what the Lord is going to do with Israel in the future There's this statement in verses 33 and 34 where where the Lord says this, I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it. On their heart, I will write it. Now in the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah were speaking of a special time in the future where God would work in a very marvelous way among the people of Israel, something that they'd never experienced before. In the past, the law was external to them. But Isaiah and Jeremiah say in the future, for the nation of Israel, there will be a time, and we read this in Jeremiah 30, 
to 33, there will be a time when the Holy Spirit will do such a special work among the entire nation that he will put the law in their hearts and that they will implicitly know how to please the Lord. Why does Paul use that here? Now, he's not saying that the church has replaced Israel. He's not saying that we have entered those times that Isaiah speaks of, because in chapter 5, he's going to talk about the eschatological day of the Lord, and he's going to say it's still future. When God is going to do this work among the nation of Israel, it hasn't come. It's still in the future. But Paul does recognize a certain blessing of the new covenant that has already been applied to the church in a, in a unique way, in, a, in an unpredictable way, in an unprophesied way, that the church has this blessing already true of it. They have been taught by God, and it's, it's really a reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit doing that work within the believers themselves. After all, back in verse 8, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit. Just one verse before, he says this, So then he who rejects this, that is my teaching, is not rejecting man, but God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. So when he gets into verse 9 and he talks about the fact that these believers are God-taught, it's a reference to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not operating externally, but operating internally within them. They have been taught of God. What does Galatians 5 say after all? If we look at Paul's teaching to the Galatians in Galatians 5 verse 22, what does he say about the first and most dramatic evidence of the Spirit's operation in a person's life? The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's not produced by the flesh. That's not produced by human forms of education moral reforms, any kind of external activities of trying to improve yourself. That's why the Greeks and the Romans could never truly achieve this Philadelphia. In themselves, it wasn't possible. But, but Paul says to the Thessalonian church, I don't need to write this to you. Why? Because it's already in you. There has been a supernatural impartation. That's the first reason here of the inevitability of Philadelphia. There is a supernatural impartation when the Holy Spirit regenerates you as a believer. When he comes and makes you alive to believe in the gospel, immediately there is imparted to you the the workings of the Spirit as he begins to produce Philadelphia within you. It's the essence of Christianity, the the chief virtue in demonstrating your salvation. This was not produced by upbringing, heritage, culture, conditioning. It's not intuitive to the natural man, but it is supernaturally imparted. There's another reason why Paul didn't have to write to them. There's another reason why this was just inevitable. There was the first reason at the end of verse 9 was the supernatural impartation. But if you look at the beginning of verse 10, you see another reason. You see another reason why Paul didn't need to write to them. Notice what the first half of verse 10 says. For indeed, 
you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. Now understand this. This is, this is Paul's concept of the Christian life. It doesn't begin externally and work its way internally. Paul's conception of the Christian life is that whatever good is produced externally comes from an internal change. And the internal change was that supernatural impartation. Your God taught. But it doesn't remain internal. When there is genuine salvation, when the Holy Spirit is truly at work in producing his fruit, it's not just something that remains theoretical, not just a principle. There's an inevitability to it, a a, a natural manifestation. And that's the second reason why Paul didn't need to, to write, why it was inevitable. There's just a natural manifestation of what has been produced internally. And he affirms this church and he says, look, you you are already doing this. The brethren in Macedonia already testify to your Philadelphia. This is evidence of the Spirit's sanctifying ministry. And we know that in the province of Philadelphia, there was the church at Philippi. Philippi was a short distance away. There's the church also at Berea, also not a very long ways away. Perhaps there were already little groups that had started because of the influence of these churches in in, in some of the other cities in Macedonia. And Paul simply says, you are already showing it. And notice this, Philadelphia isn't discriminatory. And so he says, you're showing it to all the brethren. And and this is the nature of this kind of God-taught love. It's not partial. There's this abundance. There's this overflowing, Paul says, and and the brethren are seeing it. Now, it raises the question, what is Paul referring to in particular? What What is he getting at when he says, you're already doing it? You're already doing this Philadelphia to all the brethren. And Paul doesn't say, you can kind of speculate. Some have suggested it was hospitality, the ministry of hospitality, whereby you take of your resources and, and you share with those resources to those who are neither family nor familiar in, in blood relations or in friendships. Hospitality is sharing with those who are neither family nor, nor, nor in your circle of friends. There's love of strangers, right? And perhaps what was happening was that this, this church in Thessalonica was a major, major city. It was a port city. Perhaps believers on business were moving around and going through Thessalonica, needed a place to stay, and it didn't matter who they were. They were a believer in Christ. The church in Thessaloniki would just accept them in. It's possibly that. Perhaps it's a reference to the fact that this church was, was giving towards the ministry activity of Paul and, and others, even, even the, the churches and the groups there in Macedonia for evangelistic efforts. But I think the most practical explanation is is that they were providing material resources to the needy. That's what is best to understand here. And this is for two reasons. Number one, when Paul writes to the Corinthians later on in 2 Corinthians 8, he refers to the poverty of the Macedonian churches. The churches in Macedonia were impoverished. It's not because of the area that they were living in. It's, It's for the second reason. The churches in Macedonia really suffered from persecution. 
Paul's going to make a reference to that or did make a reference to that back in chapter 2, verse 14, when he refers to the sufferings that they encountered from the hands of their own countrymen because of their belief in the gospel. And there's good reason to believe that that kind of ostracization, that kind of persecution was something that was broadly experienced by the churches in Macedonia. And that that persecution left them without work, left them without having a way of, way of, of, of earning for their sufficiency and so on and so forth. But this was a church that was very sacrificial, not only for their own body, their own congregation, but for other churches as well. They dug deep and they ministered. Reminds me of Russia, that sometimes the the poorest churches are the most sacrificial. And I remember being in numerous situations where there was an exceptional need. And I'd hear the need, I'd be in the context of some church leaders as news came about something devastating that happened to somebody in one of the local churches. And I'd be in those meetings and I'd immediately start thinking, okay, how how can we help? And, and before I could really even articulate it, the leaders of those congregations, poor as they were, would find the way especially to help their own uh, members in the state. It was, it was remarkable. And this is what this church was like. And so Paul says, what has been God taught, what is, what is supernaturally imparted is now naturally manifest. And that's a good thing for us to remember when we think of brotherly love. There's an inevitability to it. If we are truly in Christ, if we are truly part of this family, this is inevitable. And there should be the sense in which no one has to write anything to us about it. We know what to do. We know what's necessary. Because those who have needs, they're brothers. They're sisters. This is just natural to the regenerate, to those in Christ. Now, that's the inevitability of brotherly love. Let's look now at the second main idea here in this text, the improvement of brotherly love. You see, Paul doesn't just leave it at that affirmation. There's always room to grow. And in fact, this is really the heart of this text, the improvement of brotherly love. And that begins at the end of verse 10 and goes into verse 11. And he says this, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you. He begins this next sentence with a very strong verb. It has a, has a strong nuance to it that is particularly aimed at the will. Paul is really, he doesn't need to change their minds. He wants to aim at their decisions. He wants to aim at their will. And he says, we urge you, we, who's we? That was Silas. That was Timothy. The the other missionaries who had helped plant the churches, they were in solidarity in this. And Timothy had just gotten back from from Thessalonica and told Paul what was going on. And so he says, we urge you, brethren, And this urging is followed by four imperatives, four commands, four appeals. As as Paul develops this idea of the improvement of brotherly love, it's it's followed by four ideas. These are 
these are ideas we can really wrap our minds around. And Paul's going to move from the most general to the most specific. Four ideas, four emphases of the improvement of brotherly love. The first one is to love increasingly. So as we, thought, as, as we talk or think about improving our brotherly love, first thing is love increasingly. We're going to look at that in just a moment. The second one is live quietly. Live quietly. That's going to be at the beginning of verse 11. The third one is, now get this, you're probably going to wonder about this one. Focus inwardly. Focus inwardly. And then number four, work diligently. Love increasingly. Live quietly. Focus inwardly and work diligently. These are all necessary for the improvement of brotherly love. And you might think, how does this work? How can these things relate to brotherly love? Well, here's an interesting observation to make, and it was one of the things that marked the Thessalonian churches, that though there was the expression of brotherly love, there was some exploitation of brotherly love that was taking place. And so Paul wants to both promote and protect Brotherly love. And this is very important. We, we often hear of the promotion of brotherly love. We don't often think of the protection of brotherly love. But wherever true brotherly love exists, there will always be the danger of exploitation. Because of the sacrificial nature of true Christian love, there will always be the potential for that love to be abused. And so as Paul talks about its improvement in the Thessalonian congregation, he he wants to both promote it and protect it at the same time. And that's what he does in these four commands, these four appeals. Let's look at these. First of all, at the end of verse 10, you have the promotion, the promotion, love increasingly, love increasingly. It has the idea of to be in abundance, to abound, to have more than enough. What Paul is emphasizing here is, Thessalonians, you can't be complacent. You can't think that you've arrived. So long as you're here on this earth, there's always room to grow. There's always room to grow. And in fact, this little statement here, this first one, this most general way to improve brotherly love is really the key to understanding Paul's entire understanding of Christian sanctification. If you want to to summarize Christian sanctification in two words, it's this, love and grow. Love and grow. He says, excel still more. Excel still more. That's the the key to Christian sanctification. Do even more. In what? In Philadelphia. And that encompasses all the other commands of, of Christ to his church. Love, but don't be static. Grow. Love, don't be complacent, don't think you've arrived, but grow. This is the key to Paul's understanding of Christian growth. In fact, this is so evident even through his letters, we don't have time to go through all that, but in his letters, he talks about love very often. And even in this letter, you have a prayer of the Apostle Paul where he deals with this specific issue. Just turn to the end of chapter 3. End of chapter 3, he prays. He says this, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. 
Chapter 3, verse 12, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. That's what Paul is praying. He prays that there, and, and then in verse 9, he affirms it, and now in verse, at the end of verse 10, he, he then appeals for more. He exhorts. Like I said, this is the, this is the pinnacle idea of Paul's understanding Christian sanctification. But there's more. There's more. That's the promotion of it. That's the first one. Love increasingly. But now let's look at the three that have to do with the protection of brotherly love. The protection. First of all, he says, live quietly. Verse 11, live quietly. He says, and make it your ambition to live a quiet life. He doesn't allow love to be conceived of in in abstract terms, He now brings it down to the very practical, and he says, you know what? Uh, We're going to protect and improve Philadelphia by implementing this requirement. Live quietly. Live quietly. He says, make it your ambition. And what's interesting about that is that this kind of terminology, to make it your ambition, was used in other literature at the time. It was used among the politicians. It was used among the philanthropists of the Greek day. They had ambitions, but their concept was the exact opposite of this. Their ambition was to climb the social ladder. Their ambition was to be heard. Their ambition was to make noise, to become important in the society. But Paul has the exact opposite in mind. As he talks about the protection of Christian love, he says, you know what? It actually has to do with quietness. This word that he uses here for leading a quiet life has at its root the idea of peacefulness, calmness, even the the sense of restfulness. It's the opposite of being loud. It's the opposite of being turbulent, chaotic. It means to refrain from disturbing activities. Live a quiet life, Paul says. You see, what Paul is emphasizing to the Thessalonians and to us today is this. Christians are not to establish themselves in the church or in public spheres through rancor. That was unacceptable to Paul. They're not to seek prestige. They're not to make themselves heard through struggle and strife. Now, it's important to note that Paul says this to the persecuted church. We already referred to that in 2 verse 14. Church, that was already feeling the brunt of oppression. Paul doesn't say, get out your banners, start protesting, start making your voice be heard. You're too silent. He says the exact opposite. He says, for the sake of Christian witness, and we're going to get to that in verse 12, lead a quiet life. Christians are not to be the source of strife in society, even in pagan, God-hating societies. Christians are not to be the source of strife, either with each other or within the broader community. Thirdly, focus inwardly. Again, as he talks about the protection of brotherly love, he says, focus inwardly. Notice verse 11 again. He says, and to attend to your own business. Now, how can this harmonize with Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia is the overflow. It's 
It's sharing with others, right? But Paul is very careful here to draw some lines and to make sure the Thessalonians understood there is a right way to express Philadelphia and a very wrong way. Literally, Paul says, accomplish your own things. Do your own things. In vernacular, we would say, mind your own business. So we have four kids. And, you know, whenever they have a task to do, homework, chores, anything like that, it's often the time of strife. And why is that? Because every one of those kids wants to tell the other one how to do it better. You, you missed a spot. Or you're supposed to be cleaning that. Or why didn't you pick up this piece of trash? That's what happens among immature children, right? It happens among Christians. When we have tasks to do, it's often then that we get nosy. We become busybodies. But the irony here is that to improve Philadelphia, you actually have to focus inwardly on your own tasks and duties. Paul here is making it very clear that when that doesn't exist, when you don't mind your own business, you will be the cause uh, of the enemy of Philadelphia, which is strife. Where often does strife in a church come from? Sure, it can come from sin. It can come from doctrinal deviation, indeed, but often in good churches, strife comes from people not minding their own business. And Paul says here to the to the believers, mind your own business, accomplish your own things. That's how we will protect the pristine nature of Philadelphia. There's a fourth one, another way to protect brotherly love. It's found at the end of verse 11. Work diligently. Work diligently. He says this at the end of verse 11, and to work with your own hands just as we commanded you. Now Paul is at the most specific, concrete exhortation or appeal. As he talks about the improvement of brotherly love, and he talks about these four appeals, he now gets to the most concrete one as it related to the the age in which he lived. You see, we can tell even from 2 Thessalonians, we won't go there. You can write this down. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 Verse 6 to 13, Paul's going to deal with the same problem, but he's going to deal with it at greater length. There was a problem in the church. There were some who were not working, some who were not working. And there's various reasons why we can explain this. Some think it is tied to the fact that Paul or or, or that the Thessalonians were so anxious for the return of Jesus that they had stopped working and essentially just said, we're going to wait up on the hill until Jesus comes back. That's that's a common understanding of why Paul had to chastise the Thessalonians here. But I don't think it's that. Paul never makes that direct connection. I think he's dealing with a much more basic problem to human life. There's no theological justification for it. No way we can blame it on any kind of doctrine. It's just laziness. It's just laziness. And Paul is emphasizing the dignity of hard work. You see, in that day, physical labor, working with your hands, was something that only the slaves, the non-free people did. And so one, one writer, Cicero, said this, a citizen who gives his labor for money, speaking of physical activity here, degrades himself to the rank of slaves. Plutarch, somewhat of a 
lived around the time of Paul, said this, while we delight in the work of craftsmen or tradesmen, we despise the workmen. There was a low view of physical labor. And that the idea was the more elite you became, the less physical labor you did. And what Paul does here is he directly attacks that concept and says here that, that if you are lazy, if you do not work, if people have to support you, you, you are exploiting Philadelphia. And that should not happen in the church, Paul says. As much as we are to help those in need, Paul talks about that elsewhere, and this is probably what the church was doing, they also suffered from particularly men in the church who just were lazy, lazy bums. Said, well, I'm part of the family. You know, it's kind of like that, that brother, you know, or maybe an uncle, an extended family who just lives off of, you know, whatever the rest of the family provides. He just never gets a job, just lives on the couch. You know, you all know of those. And sometimes that's in the church. And Paul says, we have to protect Philadelphia from exploitation. And that means you must work diligently. You must be self-sufficient. Laziness and freeloading is not part of the church. Elitism, where you won't work because it's too low for you, not part of the church. Exploitation, where you take advantage of others' goodwill and charity, not part of the church, Paul says. All these things lead to strife. Paul emphasized here, as, as he said here, and also just as we have commanded you, that Christians are to be self-sufficient and contributing members of the church so that they are ready when there are times of legitimate needs to contribute. And not only to the church, but also to society. We are not to be those who draw upon the resources of others. We are always, as those called to be part of Christ's family, those who are to be contributing to the needs of others. That's Paul's theology here. That's how you protect Philadelphia. And finally, as we close, we have the third key idea in this text. Verse 12. It's actually still part of the second sentence, but it deserves a highlight here. Verse 12, the key idea is the impact of brotherly love, the impact. When brotherly love is both promoted and protected, when it's manifest and it's cultivated in the right way, what's the, what's the net result? Notice verse 12, he says, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Two net results, two net impacts evangelistic witness, and personal well-being. You promote and protect Philadelphia, and this is the result, evangelistic witness and personal well-being. You will behave properly. The word for properly has the idea of decorously, decently, becomingly, attractively to outsiders. And And that is a reference to unbelievers. It's in reference to the community which was ostracizing the church. And then secondly, he says, for the sake of well-being, so that you will not be in any need or that you will not be in need of anyone. You see, Paul's idea here is that to be a a functioning family, to, to be the kind of family member that is intended, you must be one who is 
always able to give, not one who is always in need. You must have this in mind, especially with respect to outsiders as well. That is how we improve brotherly love. That's how we improve Philadelphia. That's the impact that Philadelphia has when it is properly expressed. There's an evangelistic witness and a personal well-being. There's a lot here that we could talk about in terms of application today. Some of these ideas that, that we've already covered, very practical in nature, and I, I encourage you to go home and think through this text, but there's one thought that I want to leave you with. None of this is possible. None of this is achievable if we miss that very special word that Paul invented for this text. God taught. You can't manufacture this on your own. You can't reform yourself. If Philadelphia is truly present, it has to be God taught. And I want to leave you with this question. Is it taught to you? Has God imparted it to you? If he has, it's inevitable that it'll work its way out. But if there is no brotherly love, it means it's never been imparted, and that means you're outside the family. We want you inside. But if it's not been taught, you're outside the family. And so the challenge to you is you must get right with the Lord. That's where it begins. You must look to him and say, I need new life. I need the spirit who gives life and who imparts this love in my life. You need to embrace the gospel. That's your challenge. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we consider this text, we we do recognize a lot of practical exhortations and even admonishments. So we ask that your spirit would not let us forget these words, but would take this text press it deep within us, use it as a flashlight to shine into the darker areas of our lives so that we would see what's there. And as he does that, we do look to your spirit to also provide the grace and the wisdom strength needed to improve, to get better. That we would not just expect brother the love for others from others, that we would also take great pains to avoid exploiting it in any way so that in the church before the watching world, the manifold wisdom of your gospel would be put on display and the watching world would say, yes, those are disciples of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.